Today, I want to talk with you about three of the most difficult words in the world to say. At least I know that's true for me. And the last four weeks or so that I've been living in and through this message today, I've been practicing these words. I've been amazed how tough they are to get out. Three little words. Maybe you've discovered the same thing as well. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we're so impressed when we hear people look at us in the eye and say, I was wrong. It was just a few days ago that former Senator John Edwards had his opportunity to go public. Uh, You know his story. Uh, The the jury acquitted him of one count, uh, couldn't decide on five other counts, and so there was a mistrial declared. And after former Senator Uh, Edwards and former vice presidential candidate Edwards uh, was released from the trial. He stood with his adult daughter on one side, his parents on the other side, and this is what he said, I quote, I did an awful, awful lot that was wrong. I am responsible. I don't have to go further than the mirror. It's me and me alone. I was wrong. (laughs) I think you made his point, don't you? I was wrong. Wow. We have our own stories of failure, don't we? Fortunately for at least most of us, they haven't been quite as public as Senator Edwards. But our own stories of failure, that's a part of our human experience. And today... As we, in a moment, take a look at our own, I want to, first of all, consider with you the story of Jesus and two of his closest friends and how they worked through failure. Two guys who both failed, but who had very different outcomes because of their response. And what was the essential difference between the two of them? One of them said to Jesus, I was wrong. When we have our uh, Jesus inner circle included uh, Judas and Peter, each of them failed huge the same night. I'm, I'm going to be listening for your response. You can all say it out loud. What was Judas most known for? What failure? Betrayed Jesus, sold him out for 30 coins. What was Peter's failure most known of that night? Denied that he knew Jesus three times over. The very night when Jesus needed his friends the very most in his life, these two out of the 10 turned against him with a denial and a betrayal. One of the things that we learn is that in relationships, we have three possible ways of turning. We can turn against, we can turn away, or we can turn toward I'm going to ask uh, a brave mobile guy to help me. Do I have a volunteer? You'll need to be able to do three things. Walk up here, stand here, and the third thing you need to do is to smile. And it'll take about three minutes. Steve, I have a volunteer. Would you thank Steve Baker, Dr. Steve Baker, as he makes his way down right now? There we go. This may be the first time ever you've been introduced as Dr. Baker here at this church. Yes. You know, there's a bunch of PhDs here, and I asked Steve and some of the others around here, why don't you guys ever use the word doctor? And it's because everybody that you work with is. So we're glad that you go to church with a bunch of us that aren't. So if you need a doctor today, there's one in the house. 
but you are the kind that can't do any of us any good. Correct. <laughs> I, I didn't promise you that I would harass you. I just asked you to come and visit with me here, didn't I? True, but harassment was implied. <laughs> you know me well. I'm going to ask you to stand right over here if you would, and you can face these wonderful people and see why it's so easy to love this congregation. Aren't they amazing? I mean, that one right there, that Kathy one right there, that's right. And Mia, that's about this tall now, yeah. Well, Steve, I'm going to ask you to be Jesus. Not hard for you to do, I know. So can you see Jesus when you see Steve today? Here he is, yeah. And I'm Judas or Peter. Take your pick. I'll play both of them. Okay, I've got both of their parts down. What we find is that there was a relationship. And by the way, when men have a direct relationship, you know that they never stand face to face. Don't you know that? You know that. It's apparent from age five, generally speaking, that boys don't go like this. That's just weird, Steve. Uh-uh. It's like this. Once I learned that one time, I actually had a conversation with a guy who was boring to me, and I decided to spice up my experience. And so, Steve, I actually did this, and he shifted, and we worked our way all the round three... <laughs> All the way, 360 degrees around, because he could not, it was subconscious, he could not handle the face-to-face. That was free for this service. I need to get on with this message. Here we go. Okay. This is what happens to me. Oh, man. See that manuscript over there? That was not in the manuscript. Yeah. So, we have opportunity in relationships. We have this relationship. It's honest. We fight once in a while, but we fight fair, and we are, tell the truth, and we care for each other, and we're committed to each other. And then somewhere, because this always happens to flawed, failing human beings, I turn against my friend Steve. Somehow I betray him, I deny him, I gossip about him, I talk ill of him, I rip him off in some way, I, I am unfaithful to him somehow, I turn against him. And in my regret about that, after the initial emotions have worn down, and I'm feeling about that, and I don't want to have turned against him, I now have two options in how I can turn in this relationship. I can turn away from him. I'm back close to him, but I'm still ignoring him. I'm going to find a way to make this work out on my own. I'm really not hearing him. I'm really not acknowledging. I'm really not, I'm sorry to him. I'm not, I'm wrong to him. I'm going to fix it on my own. We find this modeled in one of the characters today. Or I have a third choice, one who has turned against and can choose to turn away but to once again turn toward. And there's nothing that starts a turn toward relationship like the words, I was wrong. Thank you, Steve. Would you thank Steve today? Let's take a look at a story today of Judas and Peter. And I have actually collapsed three long chapters into one reading. So it may be most helpful for you today, even though we love and encourage for you to bring your Bibles or to pick up a Bible in book form outside or to bring your tablets or your phones. Today, it might be easiest to either read off of your notes or off of the screen as we take this story from Matthew's chapter 26, 27 and John chapter 21 and see this experience shared by Judas and Peter, their story woven together. Let me read. 
Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. He jumped into the water. And when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Wow. Two guys sharing a common story. Their roads diverge over who they said I was wrong to. Let's make some observations that as you do in your soap time each day, just jump out at this passage to us. The first one is this. Jesus knew Judas and Peter would both fail. He knew it. He picked them anyway. He knew precisely how they would fail. He knew when they would fail. And he predicted it with a prophecy. Tonight, one of you will betray me. Judas said, oh, that wouldn't be me, would it? Peter said, I will never deny you, even to the life. Jesus knew they would fail. I wonder if that has some implications for how we pick friends. Have you picked friends that have been losers? Well, if you have friends, they are certainly losers, aren't they? The human condition is one of frailty and failure. Of course we fail, not because we set out to or intend to, Jesus understood that those very closest ones failed. He picked two even though he knew they would fail. Hmm. The second observation that we make is that Jesus called this betrayer and this denier friends before, during, and after. 
Did you notice that the word friends came up in the passage twice? Once to Judas, who was in the process of betraying him there in the uh, olive garden grove. Judas came up with a cheerful voice, hello, rabbi, and he kissed him, which was the sign of betrayal to those who were going to arrest Jesus. And Jesus responded to the betrayer in the moment and said, friend, do what you're here to do. You're still my friend. Wow. It was to Peter and the others who had denied and then left Jerusalem and gone to Galilee, had gone back to their occupation of fishing in their boat all night long, fishless, not like you guys who were at the fishing weekend last week. Mike, you limited out first and fast, I understand. They fished all night without success. Jesus calls out to them, and what's his first word to these who have denied him? Friends, he calls. Friends. And Peter, so excited jumps out of the boat and comes to Jesus. The third observation is that relationship failure happens when we turn where? Against. We turn against. We let them down. We rip them off. We betray them. We break trust. We don't fulfill the promise. We create the distance. Relationship failure happens when we turn against as both Peter and Judas did. A fourth observation from this passage is that relationship reconciliation fails when we just turn away. Peter and Judas both turned against, but Judas chose in his remorse to turn away. I'll fix it on my own. I feel bad about this, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to try to undo it. I'm going to go back to the religious leaders and give them the money and try to reverse this whole thing. It didn't turn out the way I expected. I'm going to try to fix it on my own. And that's how religion gets formed, isn't it? I will fix this on my own. I will get good enough to be accepted by God. I will be diligent enough to get accepted by God. I will try to undo my past wrongs to be acceptable to God. It's still a form of turning away. It's Frank Sinatra's, I did it. What way? My way. The next observation we see is that relationship reconciliation happens when we turn where? Toward. One who had turned against Peter now turns toward. And we find him one chilly morning shivering by a little breakfast fire that Jesus had created. And as he stands there dripping wet because he had completely clothed himself in the boat and he jumped in and he is swimming and splashing and fighting his way to shore and he gets there first before the others. And I imagine that he's holding himself and shivering by that fire and he's looking at Jesus and he's wondering what's going to happen. But he has turned toward him, and he's vulnerable, and he is open to hear what Jesus has to say. And at that moment, what did he hear Jesus say? Do you love me, friend? And in that open moment of, I was wrong, his response three times, reminiscent of his three-time denial, was, I love you. I love you. You know that I love you. 
relationship restored. It's no wonder to me that just days later, a few weeks at most, on the day of Pentecost, recorded by us by physician Luke in Acts chapter 2, as this very same Peter now stands before a crowd of thousands and he preaches to them that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world, that the people respond to him and others and say, what should we do? And Peter responds with a one-sentence, compound sentence verse that says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. When Peter said that word, repent, I, I can only imagine that he remembered that day, days before, when he had done his own repentance. Repentance simply means I've been going against, and I do a U-turn, a 180-degree turnaround, and I swing entirely from this direction to this direction. In our story, I turn from being against to turn toward repentance. I'm not going to go against you, God. I'm not even going to turn away and try to do it and fix it on my own with religious practice or sincerity. I'm going to come all the way vulnerably to you, this picture of repentance. And so Peter says to these people, if you want to get reconnected with God through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, and forgiveness of sins, this is how you do it. You repent, and you come to him. And in the name of Christ Jesus, you receive forgiveness, and you express that publicly in water baptism as we celebrated with three last night. And they were completely immersed in water, identifying with the death of Jesus and came back out of the water, dripping wet, celebrating new life in Christ. And Peter, I can only imagine, was remembering his most recent completely dripping wet experience and his own repentance story of jumping into the boat and struggling towards shore and standing there with water running down his hair and dripping from his beard and his wet clothes clinging to him that morning as he couldn't wait to hear what Jesus would say to him. And he was invited to reaffirm his love relationship. That's the message Peter preached. In fact, this word repentance is just a primary idea throughout the Gospels. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was given by God the assignment to be Jesus, the Messiah's introducer to planet Earth. And as Jesus' predecessor, preached the message of repentance and baptized people in the Jordan River in a baptism of repentance. And you remember that Jesus himself came to John, the baptizer, and said, I want you to baptize me. And you remember that John objected, and he said, no, you, you're the son of God. You don't need to repent. But Jesus said, no, you don't understand. I need to be baptized. And that's where he began his personal identification with our sin that he would carry for us in death on a cross. And as Jesus was baptized by John, then Jesus came out of the water and began to preach, and his, his story was one of the coming of God's kingdom, and that the coming of God's kingdom would always be entered 
by an act and step of the word repentance. Repent and enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is both now and present and is future and full. It's now and present. God right now is ruling and reigning on planet earth. And he's doing that through one life at a time. When you repent of your sin and come to Christ for forgiveness and the life of his spirit lives within us. Now led by the spirit, God's kingdom lives in in you. And then as a community of faith together in a local congregation, as in in the church together universal, we are the agents of the bringing of God's kingdom. And we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is now in part on earth. And God's kingdom will be future fully in the universe. At the fulfillment of God's grand plan, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Peter stood that day after a long message using the Old Testament and his own experience as support for his argument that Jesus Christ is God's son, the promised Messiah, to the question, so what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Your kingdom come in my life. I was against and now I turn toward. Hmm. So I ask myself, Jared, why is it so hard to say three simple words? I was wrong. Well, I've had a running start ahead of you in thinking about this, and let me share with you four things that came to mind. Uh, My guess is that you might find yourself somewhere in my story too. The first one, that's difficult to say I was wrong, was I want to shift responsibility. Blame shifting. By the way, before you're too hard on me, I come by this honestly. My parents and your parents taught us this well. Their names were Adam and Eve, right? Uh, Their first turning against God, and they were challenged by that. Do you remember what the man did? Said the woman made me do it. Do you remember what the woman did? The snake made me do it. We come by this honestly. It's a part of our genetic makeup, of course. We want to shift blame. And at least I only want to retake responsibility for my part. I mean, doesn't doesn't the maxim say it takes two to tango? Or there's always two sides to a story? I want to know what my liability is. Like an arbitrator in an insurance issue where there is an accident that attributes blame. I especially want this in my marriage to Anne. So I want to know how wrong I was in this. And of course, by implication, how wrong Anne was. If I'm 90% wrong, I'll take 90% of the responsibility. I'll also point out your 10%. 50-50 works well for me. Generally, of course, in our relationship, it's 5%, 95%, right? Isn't that how it works out for you and the people that you love? Sure, yeah. No, I was wrong takes responsibility for my wrong. I was wrong is not a conversation about percentages of blame or fault. I was wrong. I love what former Senator Edwards said, I don't have to go farther than the mirror. I am 
responsible. I was wrong. Hmm. The second reason that I find myself not always wanting to say I was wrong is that I want to justify my actions. You know how it works, don't you? We judge other people by their behavior. Behavior. You said, you did, you didn't do, and we judge ourselves by our motives. So we can justify our behavior. If you only knew what I intended, I didn't expect that outcome. I didn't mean for it to happen that way. I intended for this to be helpful is a motivational justification for behavior. And it provides for us an excuse that may or may not be legitimate, but it is not just looking them in the eye and saying, I was wrong. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a friend and a uh, friend, kind of a colleague, and I had an appointment to see her, and it was a professional relationship, and I got there seven minutes late. I don't get to appointments late. I got there seven minutes late, and uh, she was fine. She greeted me. She said, Jared, how are you? And it was all smiles and nice and warm, and I said, well, thanks for asking. I'm really doing fine, except I am tardy. I'm seven minutes late. This is not how I treat people, and I am sorry. I apologize for that. And she did what you would probably expect, a mature, a nice person to do. She said, oh, that's fine, that's fine. I had other stuff to do. And I said, I do have some excuses that if I gave them to you, you would probably agree that I had good reasons to be late. But I said, my guess is you really don't care. And she laughed and she said, you're right. I really don't care. Let's get down to business here. You know, one of the things that haven't we discovered that we really don't care about? is hearing about other people's excuses. Do we really? We want to hear them accept responsibility. I was wrong. A third reason, am I being hard on myself or what? And I'm dragging you right through this mess, aren't I? Yeah. The third reason it's hard to say I was wrong is that we want to save face. Face, it's our brand. It's our public image. It's what we've presented to others. We want to save face because it can be humbling or embarrassing to be wrong. It takes courage and strength and humility to look them in the eye and say, I was wrong. And the fourth and last reason that came to mind, well, not the last one that came to mind, but I'm beat up after four of these, so this is the last one I'm going to talk about. The fourth one is that we, we get emotionally hijacked. When I blame, when I justify, when I try to save face, that often evokes in the other person negative emotions. They tend to react out of that. And then I'm displeased with their reaction to my good effort. You know how this goes. And when I react, they react, and it becomes an explosive escalation. And pretty soon, neither of us is behaving out of rational thought, are we? but we are reacting out of this emotional state that is driving us toward behavior sometimes that we regret on the other side. Don't vote on it, but anybody been there with me? Sure. We call that an amygdala hijack. When God made your brain right back in the center, kind of lower back central part of your brain is a little area called the amygdala. 
And the amygdala is very fast because it doesn't have to do very much. It's the threat radar center of your brain. And when the amygdala senses threat, it immediately sends a flood of stress hormones, mostly cortisol and adrenaline through your body. And your body goes into a classic fight, flight, or freeze response. And in this emotion, which is generated physiologically for you faster than your frontal prefrontal cortex, which is the executive part of your brain that's actually smarter, but it takes a little longer to process things. If you don't take a moment to sit on the emotion and let the good boss part of your brain to begin to function here, the amygdala hijack is that we make decisions and we express ourselves in words and behaviors that often are regretted later. In fact, you know that you've experienced an amygdala hijack when you recognize these three things. First of all, it was sudden onset, strong emotional reaction, and then, of course, you regret it soon after that. (laughs) But the soon after, it's often too late, isn't it? Yeah. I know that this happens for me with, well, email is a classic for me. A text, a phone call, a conversation, the emotions rise. What do I do? You all have friends like this, I'm sure. I use friends in the broad general umbrella of friendship that Jesus described. For about the last three or four months, uh, I've been involved with three other guys in trying to resolve a business dispute. Two of them are directly involved. The other two of us have been asked to help them with the process. And it has not gone well. Four months with this gnarly thing, and we frankly aren't that close to resolution. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I do know this. One of the men involved loves email because he can think best then, and he is a detailed person, and the emails are long and judgmental and pious-sounding. Can you tell I'm ticked off? Yeah. I've had four months of this. Uh, the better word is um, exchange, communication exchange, four months of this. And just a couple of days ago, I got one of those emails, and I read that email, and my amygdala has been active, but my better executive brain has, has with the Holy Spirit's help of self-discipline, has helped me behave, but I was mad, and I started typing away with thumbs and forefingers, which means the spelling is horrific, and I'm fast, and I was about ready to hit send. I thought, I'm going to respond quick. It's going to be short. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind, and I had the good sense to not send that. But I will tell you that two hours later, when I got an equally long email from him, with his treatise on asking me why I hadn't responded to his and how he was being disregarded and dissed by me. I had another near amygdala hijack. You've all been there. We all know what that's like, don't we? Yeah. So there's some reasons. And I suppose that when we say to people as I have, I'd just like to give them a piece of my mind that that's probably a good indication that that part of my mind isn't going to serve them or me if I give them a piece of it. Yeah. Sometimes it's just hard 
to turn toward and say, I was wrong. And it's always the pathway toward healing. Any relationship with God and with others. In fact, as we put this together with some simple application today, I was wrong always turns us toward. It turns us toward God, and we all need to turn from our own way. We are all at some point Judas. We are all Peter. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said it clearly, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each of us to our own way. And the result of sin or iniquity of death is upon us. We turn toward God and we do it the way Peter said in his own modeling and in his response to the question, so what should we do? Repent, be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We could just turn away like Judas. I'll fix it on my own. I'll try to be a better person. I'll try to change. I'll try to be good enough. At the end of life, I hope that the scales are imbalanced and I've done more good than I have bad as though some kind of religious effort would ever fix the wrong. Or we can turn to God as Peter did, dripping wet. I was wrong. It's John who was the one that referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that a nice way to talk about yourself? I'm the one he really likes. It was that John, late in his life, decades later, who said this. If we said this, he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. When we say, I was wrong, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was wrong. Turning toward also works in our relationship with others. When I turn toward with I was wrong, it doesn't mean that they're obligated to reconcile with me. We've all experienced our humble effort and others' rejection of it. Sometimes relationships are so damaged that others just can't find it in their heart to reconcile. But when we turn with I was wrong, we open ourselves up humbly to that acknowledgement. It creates the pathway for a relationship to be reconciled. One of our values here at Evergreen is honest communication. We tell the truth. We speak it in love. We tell the truth. We encourage. We invite. We challenge each other. But it's the openness that includes from time to time, I was wrong. I was speaking with a marriage counselor, and she was sharing about a powerful technique that she sometimes uses for couples whose relationship has been so broken, where someone or both have turned against the other in a betrayal, in a denial that is so shattering of trust that it makes the relationship almost impossible to go forward. But in their effort 
to find a way to turn toward. They've come to her for help. She describes the sometimes, sometimes it's the first session and sometimes it's much later in their times, but she senses that it's right. And she says to this couple who's been sitting in two separate and separated chairs, today, the first thing I want you to do is to pull your chairs within six inches of each other. She says it's amazing sometimes that that's the most difficult physical thing they've done in a long, long time is pull those chairs a little bit closer. And then she says, as they're seated, I say to them, today, I want you to touch your knees. I want two knees to touch. And then she says, there's one more thing I want you to do before we talk today. I want you to take a hand, and I want you to join your two hands. And she said, if they can sit near each other, and if they can touch knees, and if they can join hands, I know that they're on their way. This couple who has shared such intimacy in every area of their life, but have turned against and are looking for their way back, finding a way to turn toward. My question for you today is, who will you turn toward this week? God and others. It might help you if you have something in your hands to set it to the side. Maybe you have notes, a Bible, a pen, a a tablet, or a phone or something, or just kind of set it aside for a moment, if you would. I'm going to invite you to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today. For some of you, that may be a new idea, God talking to you. And I I don't know how others that are well-experienced in that would describe it, but for me, I I sense God speaking to me, and I can share it with you this way. There's thoughts that come to mind. They're just priority thoughts that are come to mind at a time like this. And then there's emotions that are consistent with those thoughts, and there's a a sense of conviction about that, and the thoughts and the feelings come together. And sometimes those thoughts are a mental picture. Today, for some of you, it may very well be a person that you're estranged from, that the Holy Spirit is calling you to turn toward. And then I have a third thing. Some people would say it's, it's a conviction in your gut. Others of us would say it's a conviction in our spirit that there's the thoughts and there's the motion, and then there's this conviction. It's called a gift of faith that rises in you, and the three of those come together to form a bond. And right now in these next moments, you know that that is God's priority for you. And in just these moments, for many of us, possibly all of us today, he's going to be leading you. It's going to be guiding you with your next best step. For some of you, it's going to be to get right with God. And today, as I lead in a moment in a prayer, you're going to have the opportunity to join me and say, I was wrong. And you, like Peter, will find Jesus standing before you saying, do you love me? And I love you. Others of us, what comes to mind will be a person. And we'll have that sense about that next best step that we can take this week. Would you close your eyes, listen to this story encounter that I had a few years ago, and listen to what God is saying to you. When uh, our daughter was about five, she and I were traveling. One night uh, in an unusual, dark hotel room, she called across the darkness between the two beds, and she said, Daddy, is your face turned toward me? And I said, 
Yes, my face is turned toward you. Good night. I love you. She called across. Good night, Daddy. I love you. We're all the kid. God is the dad. Jesus stood at the shore. Friend, you know I love you. Do you love me? You know that I do, Daddy. What's he saying to you today?